0: I don't want to disparage any of my compatriots, but I'm reading something right now where after every single line of dialogue, the author is giving us a scene direction of, he said as though he was trying to remember something his grandma said 20 years ago. And when he did, he lifted the coffee to his mouth two inches to show him. And it's like, yo, let me fill in those blanks. Like that's the whole point of this. The dialogue is not to show the people talking. The dialogue is to tell us something about their character. Let us fill in the blanks. I don't know who said it, but somebody said that the, the reader is the most creative part of the writing process. Hi,
1: everyone. This is Ben Guest, and welcome to part two of my four-part miniseries on how to plan, write, edit, and publish your book. My co-host for this miniseries is Greg Larson. Greg wrote a fantastic memoir called Clubby. And he's ghostwritten and edited over 80 books. In this episode, we talk the writing process and we start with how writing is similar to stand up comedy.
0: There's nothing more brutal than like the in the moment feedback of a stand up comedy audience. And that's a really great gift because a- as an author, we don't have that. We're just inside our own head. And I think that's why a lot of writing can turn masturbatory, where you're not thinking about. What's the audience want? What's going to keep them reading the next sentence as standup comic. That's like right there in your face in a very painful way. So it's like the a immediate stimulus response condition. You know, if it's working immediately. Yes. Yeah. With writing, you don't really know. You just have to, I don't know what you have to trust it. At least in the first draft. I, I do this thing sometimes if I
2: can, where if I'm in the same physical space with a good friend, family member, a trusted reader, I'll print out a chapter, a section, a scene, and I'll say, can you read this and give me feedback? My parents were in town the other day. I did this with my dad and he said, sure. And it was just maybe four pages. He said, sure. And he left to go to the dining room table and and sit there and, you know, mark it up. And I said, no, no, can you sit right here and read it? (laughs) I kind of want, I kind of like want to watch you in my periphery while you read it, cause it's as close as you can come to something like filmmaking. When you watch it with an audience or stand up in front of a crowd where you can just tell from the body language, this is working. This is not working.
0: Yeah. And what was his response?
2: His response to that was just like, okay, at this point, you know, with enough creative projects, he's like, I'm not going to question the process. And it, it was fine. It's better with my mom. Cause my mom will kind of like make, you know, she'll laugh or she'll smile or she'll frown. And I can see, okay, wait, what are you, what sentence are you on? Why did you frown right there? But that you don't really get to do that as a writer. And if you do, you can't do it too often because people just get sick of you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could be the best writer in the world. And with that kind of microscope on your reading process, it eventually becomes like, whoa, there's a lot of pressure to read. Right. Right.
2: And also I think you touched on something earlier, which is, so I used to be a high school English teacher and I used to tell people stand up. I I never did stand up, but stand up and teaching are similar in that, you know, right away, if it's working, that you can't fake laughter and you can't fake an engaged group of students. And so there's that component, but there's also the component when we write of Sometimes we want the reader to have to figure some stuff out. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we, we don't want there necessarily to be clarity. And, And that goes back to your point of your compatriot who's writing something and then sort of explaining exactly what that piece of dialogue meant. Whereas if we're really doing our job, we should be laying the bricks down where the audience can make the next step.
0: Yeah. And there are times where you do need to interject. That's a hard one, man. I I don't know. So hard. I don't know how, you know, it's a gut feeling thing. I think like how many times do I interject and tell them what the meaning is and how do I do it? I know what I do is in the first draft, I will over explain so that I can shave back from there. I know that I do that, but to know where and when to shave is a gut thing.
2: Yeah, it's so hard. I, I think in general, my measuring ratio is nine times out of 10, you don't need to explain it. And one time mm-hmm. out of 10, you need to. But you know, it's yes. it's tough to know.
0: Yeah, I like that, though. That sounds right.
2: To it, it's so easy to over explain. And that's the number one thing when I go back and edit my own work. The first thing that goes is like, Why are you explaining what this means? Show, don't tell.
0: One of my old professors, John McManus, he had this rule that he would tell us. He'd say with the scene direction specifically, he's like, only leave it in there if it does two jobs. If the one job is to be a visual stimulation of some kind and that's it, then delete it. But if the job is to be, okay, show us a visual, but that visual also tells us something about the character. Oh, he said as he crossed his shoes, which were mismatched. It's like, okay, that says something about that character that they're a little bit haphazard. They're not thinking things through, that kind of thing. That is a rule that I try to keep in my mind. I love that. And I think that leads us right into where I want to go next, which is,
2: so you shared three different versions, three different drafts of just a couple paragraphs from Clubby. So I kind of marked it up. I have a couple thoughts that I kind of want to dive into, Yeah, which is, and I'll, What I'll do actually is I'll read part of each version because this is a little bit different, not different, bad or different, good, but just different than the process that we're describing. What I'm seeing here is the first version is just very much the skeleton, the bare bones, the framework. I'm doing this, I need to do this, this, and this. And then the second version is really adding lots of description and detail. And then the third version is paring it back just a little bit, adding just the correct dialogue, adding some humor and kind of turning that literary dial just a little bit. Does that make sense? I think that's exactly right. Let me read one paragraph from each of the three versions. Okay. So this is just to kind of set the scene. This is when you're first getting to Aberdeen, is that correct?
0: Yep, that's right. I'm basically, I'm walking into the equipment closet with my new boss and I am being shown a world that is going to be my new home for the next two years. And I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. Right. And so of course
2: you're now showing us the reader, this new world, and you want to convey, I have no idea what I'm getting into and going back to show. Don't tell the last thing in the world. You want to do is say, I have no idea what I'm getting into. You want to convey that feeling just through the scene. Yep. That is exactly right. So version, Jason throws the Aberdeen hat on your head. Just one of the caps left over from the year before. Blue Blue BP cap with cursive A. Nice cap, stretch fit. Okay. So that's version one. Then version two of that exact same scene, he pulled out a blue stretch fit cap with orange trim on the bill and an orange cursive capital A for Aberdeen on the crown, rather than the iron birds logo. He slapped it onto my head so that the bill was halfway over my eyes and I could only see his feet. I left it like that. Okay. So right there, I think it's already miles ahead of version one, right?
0: Yeah. Version one, I was just trying to get the idea. I wasn't even writing. I was just saying what was going to happen.
2: It's sort of somewhere between writing and an outline. Is that fair? hundred percent. So before we get to version three, when you're doing version one, just that sort of half outline, half writing. How long does that take you or is it just head down? Cause there are a bunch of typos and so forth. Is it just head okay. down writing sprint? What does that look like for you?
0: For this book? That's what that looked like. It was 2000 words a day. And I was just banging it out. Like if a piece of dialogue or a specific visual came to me, I would put it in. But literally the first paragraph of the section I sent you said, we need to know what you look like early on here so we can compare it to what you look like mid season. That's just a note to myself, but that I don't write like that anymore usually, but that is just me cranking shit out as fast as I can to get to the stuff. That's actually prose. Why don't you write like that anymore? It was fast. It's okay for a first draft to be sloppy, but it was so sloppy that some of the ghosts from the early skeleton would get stuck in the later versions. That problem is the reason why I'm writing my new book by hand. Because I can't just bang that shit out. Every choice is more costly physiologically. That's so interesting.
2: So you're writing the new novel by hand. Is that translating into a more finished piece of prose in the rough
0: draft? Oh yeah. I'm writing prose two pages a day. It might be 500 words a day. I don't know. So this is the most recently filled notebook for my current novel that I'm writing. This is all mm-hmm. prose. This is all prose, And I know that I can go into the back final pages. And on the last page, I have a header that says notes. And this is just where I have ideas for things. What does Dana in my summer look like? Use my ex-girlfriend's relationship as a model first, new and real love. So it feels permanent. Those kinds of notes, that's not prose. Those are just notes to myself before I would have put them all together. Like I did with clubby, but here they're sectioned off to the back so that I can refer back to it and say, oh yeah, I still have that here, but I'm going to use it as a reference point for writing the actual prose.
2: Yeah, that hundred percent makes sense. And so, like you said, now the price to write those sentences is a little bit more just by virtue of doing it with pen to paper. So now. Are you noticing your thinking is changing as you're writing the sentences,
0: you're thinking in more complete sentences? Interesting. I think so. I find it's definitely the cleanest first draft I've ever written. It's still sloppy enough, but the sloppiness is in the organization and the structure, as opposed to the sentences and the structure and the organization. But what I find is that I am sitting with the notepad open more often looking around and thinking before writing and then going into a flow. Whereas before it was just like 2,000 words. Let's crank this shit out. Bam, 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 bam. It's definitely sharpened things. I don't know for sure. Cause I'd never go back and read. If I go back and read, it's dead. Any book that I go back and read in the middle of it, it dies.
2: Oh, interesting. So you don't
0: go back and read a few pages before you start writing the next. Absolutely. Time? After as many people as I've coached for book writing and all that stuff. That is the easiest and most surefire book killer that most people make. I don't care if they're professionals, I don't care who you are, that's the best way to kill your book. Tell us why. Because you go back and you're face to face with the fact that you don't know what you're doing. The whole point of a first draft is to not know what the next step is. You're not gonna know what the next step is until you finish the first draft. And if you go back too early, you're gonna see how much you suck. And even if it's fantastic writing, You're going to get in your head about it and you're going to get stuck trying to perfect chapter one instead of actually writing chapter two and going forward. There's just too many pitfalls, man. And I see people fall into it all the time. Yeah.
2: Another pitfall I think is so when it comes to creative projects, it's been my experience and I've done film and I've done writing projects. It's my experience that I, I may have mentioned this. There are two types of people. Those who talk about their project, those who finish their project. Aiming and those who finish is a much smaller number than those who talk about it. So where people can get caught up, and this ties into what you're saying, is doing work around the creative project, right. but not doing the actual work. So if I go back and I start with chapter two, before I start reading chapter four, I read all of chapter two and I start fixing stuff. I can sort of tell myself, okay, I'm working on my book today but I ain't really working on my book today.
0: That's exactly it. With the novel project, I was doing that exact same thing. I was like, I need to learn the perfect three act structure before I can start writing this book. And I need to read Joseph Campbell and I need to read McKee and I need to go through all these different craft things before I can write this. I was researching and I was studying, but it wasn't me putting pen to paper. Lately, I've been on a
2: a Twitter kick in terms of trying to increase the number of followers and post more helpful content. So what I've been doing is, is doing threads, threads about self-publishing threads, about podcasting, threads, about meditation, maybe two or three threads a week, and it's fun. There's sort of a video game aspect of, of leveling up, whether it's marketing or your followers or your engagements and so forth. I always save it for the afternoon. Uh, and I think you told me this, you do all your promo stuff in the afternoon, because it's not the work it's, it's around the work, but it's not the work. And it's really easy to get sucked into that stuff. Cause it doesn't require you at your peak
0: creative powers, which for me is first thing in the morning. Same To the point where since we talked the first time I've done zero, I'm just completely focused on this novel. I
2: think with most creative projects, but especially with writing, it's this weird thing of it's important, I think, that we go out and live in the world and experience the world. And we're going to take that experience. Like, you know, we talked about your book last time, the book you're writing now, and that sort of stems from a very intense experience with you and and your ex-girlfriend or the person you were seeing. Yeah, And so we have to go out and live in the world to sort of build up some experiences that we can then isolate and be in our solitude and process and write. And so it's this weird thing of, I think if we, if we stay in our room too much, that can be, and that can be just as seductive as social media to stay and, and just write and refine and write and refine, but we have to go out, um, and experience the world
0: because that's going to be the basis of the next project. Yeah, totally agree, dude. Some author said that he's either writing or doing something worth writing about. I get what he's getting at. Yeah. So I do something a little bit
2: different than what you were saying, as far as never going back and checking. Usually what I do, so the big project I'm working on right now is co-writing a, a retired NBA player's autobiography. And it's been a great process so far. He played 15 years in the league and won three championships with the Bulls in the nineties, but he's not a household name. The, the book is really about the trauma of it terribly abusive childhood and overcoming that. And so uh, I think a book you're probably familiar with, David Goggins, Can't Hurt Me, it's sort of in the vein of that. So what I do before I start writing, I might go back and there's a couple different books. There's the Goggins book. There's Open by Andre Agassi, which is for most people's money, the best sports memoir that's been written. Maybe one or two other things that are around the voice and around the style of what we're trying to do. So I'll do that. And then I'll, I'll go back to the previous chapter the previous few pages, just to get myself back in that flow, that voice before I start writing the new thing, does that make
0: sense? It does like you're preparing yourself for the new day of writing. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. But you don't actually go back and edit.
2: It sounds kind of like what you're doing is each morning I'm getting up and I'm jumping in the deep end of the pool. And yeah. I'm kind of like wading in from the shallow end to reacquaint myself to the authorial voice so that it's consistent.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I've actually been thinking about that lately, like how much the day, how much the specific day influences the content that I'm writing. I'm like, wow, if I had written the same scene a different day, would it be different just because I'm coming to it with whatever random energy I'm bringing to that day of the right. desk. I'm curious to see without that sort of consistency, how inconsistent the tone is and whether or not that's interesting or confusing for the reader and that first reader is going to be me inevitably.
2: Right. The other thing I have to be really careful about is what I'm reading. Cause you can almost yes. unconsciously start to imitate
0: that style. Right now I'm reading some Nietzsche and I think that's <laughs> far enough for me that I think it won't influence anything. So I love it. Little Nietzsche, little
2: Danielle Steele. Yeah, right. <laughs> the other thing is. Because you're writing by hand, are you working on any other writing projects? No, I'm doing some book coaching, but that's just like emotional coaching. Right. So I imagine given that you're not trying to write in someone else's voice and that
0: you're writing every day, you probably are being consistent in terms of tone and voice. That's true. I'm, I'm pretty deep into my own into my own voice right now, more than I have been in a long time, I'd say maybe ever, but definitely in a long time.
2: Okay. So let's go back to these three versions. Yep. 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 So I read version two, I'm going to read version two again, before I read the final version. And so for the listeners as much as possible, try to pay attention so that you can see how just a few things have changed between version two and the final version, but how it makes. All the difference. Okay. So this is version two. He pulled out a blue stretch fit cap with orange trim on the bill and an orange cursive capital A for Aberdeen on the crown rather than the iron birds logo. He slapped it onto my head so that the bill was halfway over my eyes and I could only see his feet. I left it like that. And so again, what we're talking about at the top is trying to let dialogue do some of the lifting and the whole point is to communicate a feeling to the reader. So here's the final version, keeping that in mind, final version, he pulled out a blue stretch fit cap with orange trim on the bill and an orange cursive capital A for Aberdeen on the crown, on the crown. He slapped it onto my head. The bill sagged halfway over my eyes and I could see only his feet there. He said, now you look like a clubby. Okay. That it's the difference. I forget who said it, Mark Twain, maybe. The difference between the lightning bug and lightning, right? It's almost the same paragraph, just a few slight changes in that bit of dialogue at the end there, he said, now you look like a clubby that conveys so much feeling.
0: Yeah. It's the initiation process. That's the period at the end of the sentence of here's the new world. Here's where you'll be sleeping. Here's the toothbrushes. Here's the equipment. Now you're in this shit and you have no way out. And I'm glad that you gave me the assignment because like I went back through and there's this sentence it's a super long run on sentence. He pulled out a blue stretch fit cap with orange trim on the bill and an orange cursive capital A for Aberdeen on the crown rather than the iron birds logo It has the right information. But I was like, that's just way too much in your mouth. That's way too much to read. So I just chunked it together. And when we think about sentence construction, he pulled out a blue stretch fit cap that, that. Well, here's the final version, like you read, he pulled out a blue stretch fit cap with orange trim on the bill and an orange comma helps to break up the sentence, but it's a necessary comma, cursive capital A for Aberdeen on the crown, period. He slapped it onto my head. So it's like, instead of one long run on sentence, it's a pretty long sentence followed by a really quick, he slapped it onto my head, which sort of prepares us for the ending, the ending quickness as well. There's like a parallel quickness, I think. 100%.
2: And. Just the taking out rather than the iron birds logo. Yes. Which that is just little... grammatically confusing. Right. Grammatically confusing. Doesn't add anything because you've already described the hat, but just that little change as an English teacher it was always clarity in all things. That's why you want to write well, clarity and writing prose. You don't necessarily want clarity at all times James Joyce is legendary for, for not having clarity, but the sentence works so much better just with that little edit.
0: Yeah, I think so. I I never had any idea that that's what I did, you know,
2: but the dialogue, just that one line of dialogue there, he said, now you look like a clubby and it's the counterpoint to the hat may be the wrong size. It's not properly balanced uh, on your head. It's this new world and it's the counterpoint to may look like a clubby, but what the fuck is going
0: on? Adding that piece of dialogue. What do you remember about doing that? The thing with nonfiction, I'm never inventing things. That conversation is, that conversation is in there in my memory. I was tweaking like little pieces of dialogue to make it. Cause if I write exactly how people talk, it's just garbled up. So in my memory, there's just this fragment of him. Saying that I look like a clubby after you like slapped the cap onto my head. And I was, I didn't even think about it as being significant. I just threw it in there because it's something that I remembered and putting it at the end seemed right at the time. It was one of those instinct choices where I was thinking, I didn't know all of this stuff that we just talked about. I didn't know what it symbolized or anything like that. It just felt right. And that's so much of what I did, like even in the later drafts of this book and probably in the later drafts of every book, is just following that gut instinct.
2: Yeah. I think one of the key techniques to conveying a feeling, to conveying an emotion is juxtaposition, right? Is that counterpoint. And so a lot of times when it comes to literary nonfiction, to memoir, I think one, it's so helpful that if you have a journal you can refer to, or oh yeah, you, you mentioned having videos and photos, all that stuff is so helpful. But then the job, once you get the scenes out is rearranging one scene to juxtapose with the next scene yes. or a piece of dialogue to juxtapose with what's happening. Or a lot of times what I'll find myself doing is going back and figuring out, okay, this was June of 2015. What were the pop songs? Is there a snippet of this song that I was listening to at the time, or that was popular at the time that can be a, a nice counterpoint to what's happening in the scene. So just like in film, you know, the sort of the core skill of filmmaking is the edit where you're literally juxtaposing one, one image to the next. I, I think that's a great technique that used to good effect here of juxtaposing what's happening with a a line of dialogue.
0: Yeah, I had never even thought about it that concretely, but you're right. I was trying to, especially in this book, I might've even gone too far with that as far as yeah, the juxtaposition between what I expected that world to be like and what it was actually like, it got to the point where it might've been a little bit too melancholy because the, what I expected to be like was this beautiful pristine world of baseball. And then was something much seedier than that. I think I went too far with that. Why do you think you went too far? Some of it is from reader feedback, but more than anything, when I go back and read it, I'm like, okay, I get what I was trying to do. I was trying to, I was like trying to be too consistent as in I I was trying to not get off of message. And I was like, okay, the message is disillusionment. And if I want to get the message of disillusionment across, I need to constantly have that juxtaposition between what I dreamt of as a kid and what I actually got as an adult. And I just did it. Way too much. And I don't think that's honest to what life is like. It's too much gray to be that one dimensional. I
2: think that's such a great point. I remember my favorite high school English teacher after I became a teacher, I went back and took him out to dinner and we just talked teaching and he said something to the effect of after about five years, you're going to look up and be like, holy shit, there are kids out there. Like for the first five years of teaching, you're just so locked into what, what I'm doing, what I'm saying, what's on the board. Right. And then, but it was great because he broke it down. He's like, then five years after that, you're going to do this. And then five years after that, you're going to do this. And you're just sort of breaking down in five year stages, the progress you make as a teacher. And I think when we're relatively early on in our writing journey, you kind of referenced uh, some of the storytelling gurus and books, we become so focused on linear progress of characters. And if we're writing memoir, usually the main character is ourselves. There needs to be kind of a clear A to B, B to C, C to D character arc. And of course, real life is really fucking messy and people act in contradictory ways all the time and they progress and they regress and so on and so forth. It's not really true to life to have one sort of tone to your character yes. arc and, and we should celebrate the messiness and a good storyteller, a good writer can make that whole messiness cohere.
0: Dude, totally agree. To make that messiness coherent in some way is hard because there has to be a reason in my book that I'm writing right now. I'm like, oh, this character is the bad guy. Therefore what I can't empathize them with at any point this mother character, this kind of the bad guy. And my goal is to make her as empathetic as possible. I want the reader to identify with her maybe more than they identify with the protagonist. And it's really fucking hard. And I don't know if there's a formula for it, but I'm just trying my best.
2: When it comes to protagonists and antagonists, I think the best stories are when you're almost equally invested in rooting for both characters.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds cheesy, but Thanos and the Avengers... I mean, and, you look at him, you're like, yeah, you know, he makes some good points. I kind of like him.
2: The fourth Avengers was Endgame. So the third one, Infinity War. He's, and I remember reading an interview with the with the writers, Marcus and McFeely, and they're saying at a certain point, as we're breaking the story, we realize Thanos is the protagonist of Infinity War and the Avengers are the antagonists. They're trying to stop this character who has an active goal. <laughs> that makes sense. I'm trying to think of... Another example, so the movie Heat with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, both characters are fully fleshed out to the extent that even though they're on a collision course, when you're with Al Pacino's character, you want him to win. And when you're with Robert De Niro's character, you want him to win. And then of course, ultimately they're going to collide. Another great one is Hans Gruber in Die Hard. That's another example Hmm. of he's the protagonist. He's the one actively pursuing a goal. And Bruce Willis is mucking things up. Bruce Willis is the antagonist of that movie. Although he's the hero, of course.
0: Yeah. With the actual writing of the first draft, it's weightlifting. It's like just showing up, putting in the reps and just like pounding something out. I don't care if it's really smooth or it's like what I do with the skeleton first drafts. That can be done by anyone who can hit a keyboard or who can write a finished book is better than 99.9% of every book that's ever been conceived, right? So, but with that can be done by anyone, but editing, I don't know, man, it's a certain alchemy to it. And I have no idea we're going to shift into the editing part of the process. And I have no idea if I'm going to have any sort of insightful wisdom to share with you, but I am here for it. Well, let's
2: just talk process. One of my favorite quotes is, I think it was Picasso who said, when critics get together, they talk meaning when painters get together, they talk brushes.
1: That's the end of part two. Next week is editing. If you found this helpful, please subscribe to my Substack. Totally free weekly podcasts and newsletter posts with content just like this one. It's at benbo.substack.com. B-E-N-B-O.substack.com. Benbo is my family nickname. So benbo.substack.com. Thank you so much. Have a great day.